What up, y'all? This is John Lawrence, and I'm coming to you with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. I'm so stoked to bring you this series. This is the Top Drawer Rundown. Now, this has been the most requested topic of all over the several years that I've been producing the podcast. I think I mentioned doing it way back in the early days, back in 2015, and uh, have never gotten around to doing it until now, so I'm, I'm stoked about it. So this is going to be the rundown of the most common medications found in anesthesia carts. These are the meds that we use every day and that each anesthesia provider should be a master of. Uh, now, this is a quick rundown, um, but each episode is a three-part series. Each episode would be a little bit over an hour long, and we spend about five to ten minutes on each medication. So, break it up, pause it, come back to it. Uh, this is meant to be an introduction for anesthesia learners, so SRNAs and anesthesia residents, perhaps even emergency medicine residents and paramedics, and hopefully it's a good review for practicing CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists. I've broken the series into three parts, and to produce it, I'm joined again by Michael Mielnicek. Now, you may remember Michael from our deep dive podcast on succinylcholine last year. Well, since I had last had Michael on the podcast, he wrapped up his master's in nursing at the University of Scranton in December of 2018 and is currently practicing anesthesia as a CRNA in Austin, Texas. Michael has an interest in pharmacology related to anesthesia and enjoys helping others understand this fascinating topic. Succinylcholine was the focus of Michael's graduate research, and he's presented on the medication at both state CRNA conferences and the National AANA Annual Congress. Now, so I want to give you a little bit of a breakdown on what each episode will hold. Uh, we're going to touch on a disclaimer, and then we're going to get right into it. So in part one, we're going to cover propofol, atomidate, ketamine, lidocaine, fentanyl, morphine, hydromorphone, remifentanil, sufentanil, alfentanil, succinylcholine, rocuronium, and vecuronium. In part two, we're back with atropine, glycopyrrolate, neostigmine, sugamidex, metoprolol, labetalol, esmolol, hydralazine, phenylephrine, ephedrine, epinephrine, and calcium chloride. And then in part three, we wrap up with Heparin, naloxone, albuterol, dexamethasone, famotidine, ondansetron, haloperidol, ferrosamide, metoclopramide, ketorolac, oxytocin, methyl ergonavine, and carboprost. So how is that for a rundown of your favorite medications? All right, so I want to give you a quick disclaimer. So Michael and I sourced our information from the leading anesthesia textbooks, including Miller, Katzung, Ouellette, Nagelhout, and others, as well as cross-referencing with published journal articles and up-to-date. That means that we're bringing you the core, basic information about these medications. It does not mean that everything we say is flawless and completely accurate. So, some of what we say may actually be a matter of opinion, personal preference, and technique. You or the people you work with may have other opinions and techniques, and that's okay. So, that's part of developing the art of providing anesthesia, which is something you can do, of course, once you have a solid foundation of the science of anesthesia. Michael and I have both edited and reviewed our notes, and I edited the content again in post-production. However, as with any podcast or blog post, you should take what you learn here and cross-reference it with published peer-reviewed literature. Your clinical practice and your decision-making is your responsibility. 
It can be super dangerous to just take something you hear in a podcast or read on a blog and immediately implement that into your practice without first doing your own due diligence by making sure that you have both accurate information and a good understanding of how to integrate that into your practice. Uh, So additionally, some of the most common ways that anesthesia providers use medications perioperatively are actually not FDA approved or they're considered off-label. So we try to point those out along the way in the series, but again, uh, do your own due diligence and remember that your practice is your responsibility. And with that, let's get to the show. All right, well, folks, we are back with Michael Milnicek, and uh, Michael, I'm so stoked uh, that you've joined us on the Top Drawer Rundown. Hey, John, I, thank you for uh, inviting me to making this podcast with you. I'm very excited to uh, continue on with this Michael, do you want to you want to talk a little bit about what the outline of the meds will be, and then we'll get into it? Yeah, absolutely. So for this podcast, we're going to first introduce the drug um, first by its name, both generic and trade. We'll discuss the class of the drug, method of action, uh, dosing based on adult and PD um, populations, and then we'll hit some of the pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic. Uh, properties of the drugs, including onset, duration, half-life, uh, and, and, uh, and also metabolism and excretion. And then we'll conclude each drug with uh, the indications for it, contraindications, uh, things to think about uh, before you even give the drugs, so some precautions, what side effects you may um, experience from giving this drug, and then some notes and considerations, especially from our own personal experience of using it or what um, things don't fall into other categories that we, uh, it's pretty important to talk about considering this drug. Yeah. So that'll be the rundown for, for these drugs we're going to talk about today. That's awesome, man. I think that, uh, I'm super stoked to work through this with you and to get going, uh, Michael, do you want to, you want to start off with the heavy hitter? You want to talk about propofol? Absolutely. We will, we'll start off with the uh, granddaddy of all drugs. <laughs> uh, definitely one we pretty much use every day, uh, and this is propofol. Uh, the generic name of it is isopropyl phenol. The class is obviously a general anesthetic. Uh, and the method of action is actually it's a GABA receptor agonist. Uh, but it's obviously like a lot of drugs on this list that we're going to talk about today. It's not all the drugs are completely understood of how or where it works. Um, GABA, by the way, just means uh, gamma amino butyric acid. And uh, for the adult dosing, uh, when you give boluses or induction doses, uh, the, the bolus amount is, or the induction dose amount is 1 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, it's also noted not to draw this up with a filter because it is uh, emulsified in a, in a fat substance, and in this case, it's a soy uh, fat. And the infusion rate is about 25 to 300 mics per kilogram per minute, uh, but you'll see that this varies uh, extensively between providers and uh, the patient um, presentation for pediatric. Actually, for this drug, you'll have to give higher doses a lot of the time, uh, since uh, pediatric populations are a lot more resistant to anesthetic drugs. And so they recommend about two to three milligrams per kilogram for induction uh, doses or even bolus doses. Um, and uh, for pharmacodynamics, we're looking at an onset of pretty much immediately. Uh, when we say immediate, it's probably 30 seconds or less. Usually, patients can't make it to 10. Uh, when they're counting down, 
And uh, the duration of propofol varies dramatically as well. It's all based on circulation and um, redistribution of the drug from the brain back to uh, circulation. And so the duration can be anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes, uh, like I said, based on the dose and duration. And the half-life is 0.5 to 1.5 hours. So duration, you have to understand, is how long the patient is going to be asleep, but to actually get rid of it in the system is about 0.5 to 1.5 hours. And metabolism and excretion, so it's metabolized by the lungs, liver, and excreted by the kidneys. And obviously, we give this to induce any kind of anesthesia um, and to maintain anesthesia, especially if we're doing induction or we want to maintain general anesthesia, uh, also known as TIVA, without gas uh, for any kind of case that we're doing. And it also blunts episodes of surgery. A lot of the time, I know a lot of anesthesia providers provide it um, for neurosurgery when before they put the, uh, the tongs into the skull to blunt any kind of uh, sympathetic uh, response. And a real contraindication for this drug is allergies to propofol itself. Um, and some precautions to know is that propofol does decrease blood pressure, SVR, cardiac output, and um, it's also a negative inotrope and can cause profound bradycardia. It does, it causes dose-dependent uh, depression of ventilation and also causes bronchodilation and definitely can cause pain on injection. Um, and it's a lot more likely to have that pain on injection with a smaller IV or in, in more peripheral it is as well. Uh, for pregnancy, it does cross the placenta just like it crosses the brain, but it's cleared so quickly um, from circulation that it's usually not an issue with uh, neonatal uh, circulation. And uh, so some con considerations, some notes here is that you have to be careful because propofol is an emulsification of both uh, the egg whites and the uh, soy uh, fat. And so it can grow bacteria pretty quickly, um, but there, even though there is um, a preservative in it, it still should really, I, I believe the label said six hours of anything that is spiked or drawn up should be discarded. Um, and also be careful with generic versions of propofol where the vials have a preservative called metabisulfite and it can cause asthma attacks, even though it's, I've never really seen one. And I know that they do exist and it's a precautionary thing for propofol. So that's propofol. Yeah, that's great. I think propofol is obviously one of the most common medications that we use. And just to touch on something that you said, the only true contraindication to propofol is hypersensitivity or allergy to propofol. And I know there's a lot of confusion because the manufacturer label lists that an egg allergy is a contraindication, but there have been numerous studies that have shown that um, people who are allergic to eggs can receive propofol. That is true. And it's actually, uh, what's even more interesting is that in Europe, that label does not exist. Um, and it's all because of lawyer legal issues of it. And so they decided to put the label in the United States because of more legality issues around that. And, and they've confused anesthesia providers uh, ever since. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, anyway. All right. Well, hey, man, I'll take Atomidate. So Atomidate, a brand name Amidate is a uh, class hypnotic, and the mechanism of action is that it's also a GABA agonist. The dose for adults is usually 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram over uh, 30 to 60 seconds. PD is the same as a, an adult dose, but it's not recommended for ages of less than 10. 
And uh, Nagelhout, one of the uh, nurse anesthesia textbooks, says for ages less than four. The pharmacodynamics and kinetics of automidate are that the onset is about one minute. The duration is usually three to 10 minutes. The half-life is 75 minutes. And it's metabolized by the liver and excreted in the urine. It's obviously indicated for uh, inductions, and it's usually reached for when you're concerned about uh, hemodynamic stability. It can drop blood pressure, but it's usually considered more hemodynamically stable um, than use of propofol. Uh, contraindications are that you should avoid and immunosuppress patients, and precautions and side effects are myoclonus, tonic movements, eye movements, hypertension, hypotension, tachycardia, bradycardia, nausea, vomiting, hypo and hyperventilation, apnea, laryngospasm, hiccups, and adrenocorticosuppression. So uh, many people will avoid automate based upon old information for critically ill patients who they're concerned about adrenal uh, suppression. It does suppress adrenal steroid production for four to six hours, but this has not been correlated with any increase in mortality with a single dose of automate for the induction of anesthesia. You run into more problems historically uh, when automate was given as a continuous infusion. So um, for a single induction dose of anesthesia, uh, it would be safe to use for critically ill patients. Um, the safety has not, not been established for folks who are pregnant. And I think that's uh, about the scoop. So that's automate. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add on that, Michael? Yeah, I'd say uh, another thing you have to think about is if when you see automate being given, you have to be extra patient because it does take some time to really kick in. It's not propofol, so it's not that instant 10 seconds. And uh, and then the other thing I think about is it it is truly very painful uh, in the IV when given. It's actually one of the most painful drugs uh, given intravenously uh, from our list of drugs here. So just a few things to think about. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think it, we should emphasize that you you commonly will see a myoclonus. So you commonly will see mm -hmm. you know, some sort of a, a tonic movement or twitching uh, with the administration of automate. That's very common. Correct. Yep, it is common, correct. All right, so next drug, uh, ketamine. This is a great drug. has its good place in anesthesia. Uh, the trade name of it is Ketalar. It, in the class, it's a intravenous general anesthetic. Uh, the method of action is now different uh, from the previous two general anesthetics that we were speaking of. This one is an NMDA antagonist, uh, also in the category of a fencyclotine derivative. Uh, so the dosing for ketamine uh, for induction is one to two milligrams per kilogram. And uh, if you need to do it IM, you can do six to 13 milligrams per kilogram. So you can see it's quite a huge increase in dose when you're trying to give it IM. Uh, dosing. And so PD, it's actually, can, you can give the uh, same amount of dosing uh, amounts as adults, so 1 to 2 IV or 6 to 13 IM. Uh, so for pharmacokinetics and dynamics, we have an onset of about 30 seconds, but it peaks in five minutes. Uh, the duration is about 8 to 15 minutes. Uh, and for half-life, it's about 4 to 6 hours. So for metabolism excretion, it's metabolized by the cytochrome P450, and it's excreted by the urine. Uh, it creates a metabolite ca called norketamine, and it's about a fifth to a third as potent as ketamine. So don't be surprised when you still see some uh, lingering effects of ketamine after you're done with your case. Uh, indications, obviously, is to induce general anesthesia. 
Um, it, it also provides analgesic properties. Um, it has its place definitely for severe trauma cases where you cannot compromise breathing or um, cardiovascular depression. So contraindications to ketamine uh, are people with hypertension already, coronary artery disease, increased ICP, and these are not true contraindications. These are things to think about. History of CVA, history of psychiatric disorders. Uh, you wouldn't want to use them during procedures of the pharynx, larynx, and bronchial tree, uh, and also careful with patients with convulsive disorders. And the reason for all these um, contraindications that I just read is because ketamine does cause uh, a lot of hypersecretion. And so you can imagine with all the drool coming out and going into the bronchial area, it can cause allergic spasm or can make it very difficult if there's a procedure in, the, in that area. And then uh, for other precautions you want to watch out is uh, hypertension, tachycardia, arrhythmias, uh, apnea with rapid administration, laryngospasm, emergence, delirium, nystagmus, diplopia, increased ocular pressures, and uh, precautions also with nausea and vomiting. So for pregnancy, there's no well-controlled studies on the fetus, and it that just says not recommended to use, so it's obviously based on the uh, risks versus the benefit here. So the nice thing about ketamine is that it's the only general anesthetic agent that does not cause hypotension and apnea uh, when compared to a detomidate or propofol or even using gas. Um, it's highly recommended to use with an anti-silagog and a benzo like Versed. So usually, commonly, you'll see providers give glyco and Versed to try to uh, remedy the side effects of ketamine and um so an example actually given in the textbook is if you have a trauma induction and someone's crashing, blood pressure is 60 over 20, and you can't compromise anything, you can do a ketamine induction, which is usually 200 milligrams of ketamine, which is what's in the vial, and uh, 10 milligrams of Versed and 0.2 milligrams of Robinol uh, to try to do an induction without compromising the patient from coding from your induction. So an interesting thing, too, is that ketamine, even though it can cause possible increased ICP, um, ketamine also increases the MAP, um, and so it kind of balances each other out, and so it's not a true issue if you need a ketamine induction. And the other thing is ketamine releases the uh, releases like a sympathetic type effect all throughout the body, so you'll see an increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure, uh, but what is known, though, is that even though ketamine does increase these things, it usually is balanced out because ketamine is also a general anesthetic. So even though those things may go up, the anesthetic properties of ketamine in the brain will balance both the increase and the decrease from each other. And so the only thing, though, is that if you have a catecholamine-depleted patient, um, then you want to be careful because you may see just the decreasing parts of blood pressure and heart rate if they completely depleted the catecholamine stores. And so people who might have depleted catecholamine stores might be heart failure patients, hypovolemic shock, or cardiogenic shock. And then the other thing is if something is very drastic uh, with their physiologic uh, presentation of the patient, you can probably use just 10% of what a typical dose is to have the same or similar uh, anesthetic effects from ketamine. So that's pretty much that's ketamine uh, 
in a nutshell, but it is a great drug and it does have its place in anesthesia. Yeah, Anything you want to say, John, about ketamine? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, ketamine is used routinely as a analgesic and bolus doses and continuous infusions, uh, you know, across the spectrum of anesthesia cases. And also, as we've discussed in detail here, an induction agent. I think something that uh, I'll tune the listeners into is that, um, you know, one of the true masters of trauma resuscitation is a physician anesthesiologist by the name of Richard Dutton. I believe he's moved on um, from his work at uh, Maryland Shock Trauma uh, to do some uh, quality work with the ASA. But uh, he's got a great talk actually on another blog site and podcast called MCRIT, uh, produced by Scott Weingart. And the talk is called Hemostatic Resuscitation with Richard Dutton. And in that, he talks about, you know, it's shock trauma. Uh, I believe his go-to induction agent, you know, even though we talk about uh, fancy stuff like atomidate and ketamine, I think he used uh, propofol rather routinely in that he emphasizes that, you know, none of these medications, none of the medications are inherently safer than others. It's about how you use them and that you can, mm-hmm. you can induce hypotension with any of the medications in someone with severe heart failure or trauma or um, exsanguination or whatever it may be. And that typically in a truly hemodynamically unstable patient, as you mentioned, uh, Michael, a few minutes ago, that just reducing your dose dramatically, you know, down to maybe 10% of your typical um, listed dose in a text or, or resource can be effective for getting an induction done and also uh, be safer than giving a full dose to someone. So limiting your dose can be helpful. Uh, ketamine does have wonderful properties in terms of its uh, sympathomimetic effects, but its direct effect on the heart is uh, a decrease in inotropy. So it does, it actually is a, a direct myocardial depressant, but because of the other sympathomimetic effects in terms of increasing heart rate, arterial pressure, cardiac output, and that kind of stuff, it tends to offset its negative effects on inotropy. So, um, so it's mm-hmm. a good drug. It's interesting. Um, but as with everything that we're going to talk about today, it comes down to how you're using it that matters. Exactly. It has its place. It does has its place. And it definitely has its place, uh, you know, in the move towards opioid sparing and opioid free anesthesia. So ketamine is definitely something for anesthesia providers to become very familiar with. Uh, That's and, right. and moving on to another top drawer med, we'll bring up lidocaine next. So, uh, lidocaine is obviously one of our amide local anesthetics. It's also considered a class 1B anti-arrhythmic agent. And the way that it works is that it blocks sodium channels preventing nerve conduction along the nerves. So the dose typically is an antiarrhythmic, is an IV bolus of a milligram per kilogram of 1% to 2% solution with a half milligram per kilogram dose to follow every two to five minutes. Uh, with a max dose of three milligrams per kilogram per hour, and that is as an antiarrhythmic dose. Uh, PD dose is the same as an adult. The onset is very rapid. It's 45 to 90 seconds, and it peaks in one to two minutes. The duration of action is about 10 to 30 minutes, and it's metabolized by the liver. I think most people, the reason that little vials of lidocaine live in the top drawer of an anesthesia cart is not often its antiarrhythmic agent capabilities, but the fact that it's used to block the sympathetic response to laryngoscopy. Uh, so it synergistically works with the other medications, whether it's midazolam, fentanyl, esmolol, your induction agent, ketamine, atomidate, propofol, whatever it may be to block that sympathetic response to laryngoscopy. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's also useful, obviously, in the treatment as an antiarrhythmic for VFib and VTAC, stable wide complex and ventricular ectopy, and prophylaxis of arrhythmias associated with an MI. Uh, it's contraindicated if you think about ke- uh, lidocaine's effects on the heart. It's contraindicated when you're looking at um, conduction abnormalities like Wolf Parkinson White, SA blocks, and AV blocks, PVCs with bradycardia, and uh, be careful for precautions and side effects to not exceed 300 milligrams per hour. Watch for central nervous system toxicity. Reduce your dose by 50% for patients that are over 70 years old or in the presence of liver disease. And it can cause anxiety, drowsiness, dizziness, heart block, respiratory depression, urticaria, and puritis. For pregnancy risk factors, it can cause ion trapping to a fetus. So be careful when using with uh, pregnant women. And that is uh, about the scoop on lidocaine. So I think typically people for, um, you know, to uh, go back to the dose of lidocaine, I think most people use a milligram per kilogram uh, to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, somewhere in that range as part of an, an induction of anesthesia to block the sympathetic response to laryngoscopy. It's not always required, but it can help. Some people mm-hmm. will uh, give it with propofol in order to reduce the stinging of propofol. The, the information on that is very interesting. If folks want to read into it more, you know, you really need to have lidocaine infused into a vein for a couple of minutes to get its analgesic properties as a local anesthetic to help the reduction um, of propofol stinging. It's not recommended to mix propofol and lidocaine due to what the two molecules do when they're, when they're in a mixture, it can essentially I think be, it makes fat. What's that? Globules. It, it makes like fat globules that can cause embolization. You're absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. So when you look at the capillary yeah. beds of the lungs and the kidneys, uh, there have been studies that have looked at the negative effects of these essential microemboli um, from propofol and lidocaine that have been mixed together. So I think that risk is reduced if you were to mix, mix the medication, obviously, immediately before injecting, but also uh, mixing the medications to prevent pain on injection of propofol um, has also been shown to not be super effective. So uh, Mm -hmm. just some tidbits on lidocaine. Anything else, Michael, that you want to throw in? Yeah, I would just say when I commonly use it, I I use lidocaine a lot for my EGDs. It's just personal preference. I like using one to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. It, It is like we said, a local anesthetic, so it does uh, help numb that coughing reflex. And I like to use it too if I feel like I need to extubate someone deep. Um, it helps prevent that coughing as well uh, at the end. If you give them one to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, it's a great drug. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I think that's a, a bit of like a back pocket trick that I've seen a lot of CRNAs do is that uh, if you want a smooth emergence or if someone is acutely coughing on emergence, you know, a bolus dose of, of lidocaine doesn't necessarily prolong sedation significantly, but it does synergistically work mm-hmm. with whatever anesthetic is on board, and it helps kind of smooth that process. Yeah, that's right. All right, the next one. So next drug is fentanyl. Trade name of it is sublimase. This is probably one of the most common opioids, if not the most common opioid that we use uh, for general anesthetic analgesia properties. Uh, so it is in the class of opioid agonism. Uh, the method of action is actually it's a primarily a mu receptor agonist in the central nervous system and the, uh, and the spinal cord. 
So the dosing, before I go into the dosing, just know that this, it, it all is varied and uh, titrated to the patient's response and the procedure that's going on. And so you can imagine that if you're doing something as simple as a cystoscopy versus an open heart surgery, that the dosing is going to vary dramatically yeah, that's uh, great for fentanyl. So they take this more with a grain of salt and more of what the response is, just the guidelines. So for adult dosing, uh, we say IV uh, about one to two mics per kilogram. I've seen up to 10 mics per kilogram given up front uh, just based on what's going on. Epidural boluses is the exact same thing, so one to two mics per kilogram. And epidural bolusing is very nice because you're going right to the source, which is right in the spine to saturate uh, those mu receptors. And then if you're doing a spinal with fentanyl, you do 0.1 to 0.4 mics per kilogram. Uh, so for PD, it's actually the same dosing, uh, but like I said, it's all based on uh, what the procedure is and patient response. Uh, for the onset time of fentanyl, it's really fast. It's actually one of the fastest opioids for an onset time of 30 seconds or less. Uh, for an epidural or spinal, it does take about four to 10 minutes. The duration IV is about 30 to 60 minutes. Um, and uh, for a spinal or an epidural, it actually lasts about four to eight hours. Um, so that's a, actually dramatically different uh, duration of action. And uh, metabolism excretion, it's mainly metabolized by the liver and excreted by the kidneys. Uh, indication is really primarily for analgesia. It can cause euphoria. So that's why I put it also in the class of some type of anesthetic. Uh, but it doesn't really cause um, loss of memory uh, as well as something like our other general anesthetics do. Uh, the only really contraindication to fentanyl is known hypersensitivity, or in other words, if there's a known allergy to it. Uh, precautions are reducing the doses in the elderly, hypovolemic, and uh, and high-risk surgery patients. Um, and then for pregnancy, it does cross the placental barrier, so there is a risk of neonatal depression. Uh, but we do do give it, uh, even though there may be a baby uh, uh, ready for delivery, because it works well and it's not too much of a risk based on uh, past experiences. And uh, for notes and considerations here, we. With really high doses of fentanyl uh, or really of any opioid, you can get muscle rigidity. Uh, so we're looking uh, – so if you do get muscle rigidity, usually that's fixed with, with your paralytic that starts uh, kicking in. Um, and it does cause less nausea than other narcs, um, mainly because fentanyl is um, – doesn't release histamine like the other opioids do. Um, and just a quick thing just to know how potent – fentanyl is, uh, fentanyl, 100 mics of fentanyl, which is a small vial that we use when you drop the two mLs, is equivalent to 10 milligrams of morphine or 1.5 milligrams of hydromorphone, also known as diluted. So just to give you an idea, when you get 50 mics of fentanyl, that one cc may not seem like a lot, but it's really five milligrams of that morphine every time you give it. Uh, so just to give you an idea, uh, anything else, John, you think of for fentanyl? Yeah, I think that's a great rundown. I think, uh, you know, we're going to talk about a few other controlled opioid substances here in just a moment. So uh, I think it's interesting to think about the relative potency of these medications with maybe fentanyl as like a middle ground or a baseline. So we're also going to talk about remifentanil, uh, which is about twice as potent as fentanyl, and sufentanil, which is about 10 times as, as potent as fentanyl. Uh, 
We'll talk about alfentanil, which is about a tenth or 10% of the potency of fentanyl. We're going to touch on hydromorphone, as you just mentioned, and morphine, which are both less potent than fentanyl uh, to the tune of, you know, it's kind of a weird uh, uh, fraction, but like one fifteenth as potent for hydromorphone in morphine about one one hundredth. So, um, so just kind of interesting to put those into perspective. Um, but yeah, good rundown on, on fentanyl. Uh, mm-hmm. So next up is morphine. Um, and we'll kind of shorten this up because a lot of the, you know, the indications, the contraindications, the precautions and side effects are very similar when you're talking about the opioid agonist. So this is a, another opioid agonist, of course. Uh, it acts on mu and delta receptors in the brain and the spinal cord. And the dose typically is 2.5 to 15 milligrams for an adult IV and 2.5 to 20 milligrams IM or sub-Q. Uh, for anesthesia induction, uh, if you're using this as part of an induction, you can consider doing an IV dose of 1 milligram per kilogram. An epidural dose would be 2 to 5 milligrams, and a spinal dose of 0.2 up to 1 milligram. Pediatrics, uh, the dose is often given in milligrams per kilogram, and so for morphine, it's 0.05 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram IV. The onset time of morphine is essentially immediate for IV and up to 1 to 5 minutes for IM. And epidural and spinal onset times are one to 60 minutes. Duration of action is two to seven hours. So you're going to get much longer effect from morphine than fentanyl. Uh, and epidural and spinal mechanism, excuse me, duration of action is up to 24 hours. It's metabolized through the liver and kidneys. So renal problems may increase plasma concentrations of morphine. And it also creates an active metabolite, which is M6 glucuronide. <laughs> I got to think about that sometimes, uh, which is more, which is, uh, interestingly more potent than morphine, uh, which it's really only a big problem with renal impairment as it can accumulate faster than the uh, parent drug morphine gets metabolized. So obviously it's given for analgesia. We've talked about contraindications, um, you know, with any of these known allergy and hypersensitivity, uh, is typically the main contraindication, uh, we've talked about precautions with opioid agonists already, so be careful with uh, in the folks uh, who are elderly or hypovolemic, uh, high-risk surgical patients, of course. This crosses the placental barrier, so use with caution in pregnant patients. Um, it decreases, for notes and considerations, morphine decreases the effects of diuretics. So uh, be careful with folks that are on uh, with chronic heart failure and maybe on diuretics, and that it interacts with many other drugs. I think one of the main things that we consider with morphine, which is probably why most people are not reaching for morphine in most cases, is that it releases histamine, which can affect hemodynamics and sedation and all kinds of stuff. So uh, any, any other tips on morphine? No, I think that's great. You just The biggest thing is why would I use morphine? I need long-term analgesia that works well. And, that, and that's really the big reason that You'll hear providers say, try to work in some morphine now because we're getting towards the end of the case. So you're trying to provide that you know, longer-term analgesia, and that's that's the big reason we use it, in, uh, I think, in, in our practice. Yeah, I'd say you're absolutely right on that. I think folks in the ER probably reach for morphine because it, it does have that histamine release and has some sedation associated with it. So it kind of mellows people out. You get some long-term pain relief from it, and it also can just help mellow people out if you're planning on keeping them awake. Um, yeah. Great. So what's up next? 
All right. So the big brother of morphine is uh, hydromorphone. Uh, Train name is Dilaudid. Uh, I'm sure everyone on here has heard of this drug. And uh, obviously, it's the same exact thing. It's an opioid agonist attaches to the mu and some of the kappa receptors. So the big thing is it's about five to eight times stronger than morphine. Uh, so for an adult, uh, it's actually recommended when you're titrating it at about 0.5 to 1 milligram at a time where you kind of just titrate to effect. Uh, and for pediatrics, it's actually the true number here is 0.005 to 0.02 milligrams per kilogram. Um, the onset, though, for dilaudid is a little longer, something to note here, two to five minutes before you get that uh, opioid effect compared to fentanyl and morphine, where it's more immediate. The duration of dilaudid is two to four hours. Uh, it's also metabolized by the liver to glucuronide conjugate, and it's excreted by the urine. Uh, so it's obviously used for relief of moderate to severe pain. Uh, it's contraindications is really just a known hypersensitivities. Um, you have to be very careful for using it in patients who are on MAOIs. Uh, it, it does cross the placenta, so you need to be careful with those who are pregnant or breastfeeding because it does also cross the breast milk. And just some notes and considerations is that it's uh, not compatible in any solution that has sodium bicarb. Um, and it also, because it's a synthetically uh, synthetic version of morphine, it has a lot less side effects. So it still releases histamine, but at a much smaller scale. And that's dilaudid. Uh, yeah, that's great. You can no, I think that's a great rundown. Excellent. And if folks haven't caught on, uh, we're flip-flopping just to try to keep it a little interesting for you. And I'm so stoked that I get the next one, which is Remy Fentanyl. Uh, so, so brand name, I love Remy. So brand name Altiva, it's obviously uh, an opioid agonist. It's a moo agonist and the dosing depends on what you're doing with it. And you can do a lot of different things with Remy, which is, I think why it's an interesting and very useful drug. So the dose for induction for adults is typically 0.5 to one mic per kilogram per minute for induction. And then to run an infusion, most people um, reduce that down to 0.05 to 0.8 mics per kilogram per minute for an infusion. And a supplemental bolus dose of Remy could be considered 0.5 mics per kilogram. For pharmacodynamics and kinetics, the onset of Remy is pretty fast. It's one to five minutes. Duration is very short acting at five to 15 minutes. And metabolism and excretion, it's rapidly broken down by esterases that are found in the blood uh, and in plasma. So it is not dependent on the liver or the kidneys for metabolism and excretion. Now it, it's not broken down by plasma cholinesterase. So as with, you know, succinylcholine, if you have an atypical pseudocholinesterase deficiency that may prolong the duration of action of succinylcholine, that's a set of esterases that are different than what is working on Remy. And so if you have that deficiency, it will not affect Remy fentanyl's metabolism. Indications for this are a multitude, so it could be used as an analgesic on an awake patient, but it's such a short-acting duration of action, it's commonly not used for that. It's an excellent alternative to paralytics with induction, so if you have a patient where you don't want to use succinylcholine, uh, the depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, or a non-depolarizer for your induction, you could use Remy, and at a dose of two to three mics per kilogram, You'll get great intubating conditions very rapidly. 
again, with a no paralytic or an infusion, whenever neuromuscular blockade is contraindicated or you don't want that to be part of your anesthetic. So anytime you're doing nerve monitoring, any high stimulation cases where you want a deep, stable anesthetic, remifentanil infusions are a great choice. The only contraindication is hypersensitivity. The precautions and side effects are some of the same risk factors as other opioids. It's not used for spinal or epidural because of its rapid metabolism. Hyperalgesia is an effect that may occur with remifentanil doses, uh, particularly prolonged infusions. It's not supposed to be mixed with LR, but it can be run as a piggyback through a line. And remember that it's the esterases in blood that metabolize Remy, so running it through a bloodline will decrease the effectiveness of it. A couple of other notes I think remember is if you're using it as an infusion, it comes off really fast. So when you shut the infusion off, the Remy is going to be completely gone within 5 to 15 minutes, which is the duration of action. So at that point, the patient will have no analgesia on board if you've not done other things to cover them. So I will usually give, you know, 25 to 50 mics of fentanyl or some other analgesic at about the time that I shut the Remy fentanyl off so that I've got coverage for when that Remy comes off. Uh, so keep that in mind. But otherwise, um, I would say Remy fentanyl is a medication that all anesthesia providers should get comfortable using. It's great to use as an alternative to paralytics for induction, and it's a phenomenal infusion to use to augment your either propofol infusion or inhalational anesthetic base for um, a number of cases. Anything to add, yeah. Michael? Yeah, definitely. Like you said, the good saying is if, if you don't feel anything, you shouldn't move. So that's why it's great as an alternative to a paralytic uh, for uh, keeping the patient still for whatever you're doing. And then uh, the other thing, too, I just want to make sure the audience knows is that um, – those classes of drugs, I believe they're phenylpiperidines, I believe that's what it is, uh, is fentanyl, sufentanyl, alfentanyl. They don't release histamine. So obviously, remifentanyl does not release histamine, uh, unlike morphine and dilaudid. That's it. That's great. That's a great point. All right. What's up next? All right. Next up uh, is sufentanyl. Uh, I really like this drug. This is an uh, excellent opioid agonist. It's also known as sufenta, the trade name. Um, so like we said, it's the same exact method of action as the other opioids, um, but it's accepted. It's a lot more potent than the other opioids. Uh, so for an IV adult dosing, uh, we're looking at 0.1 to 0.6 mics per kilogram. Uh, another way to look at it is about 5 to 20 mic bolus. Uh, for epidural dosing, you can do 0.2 to 0.6 mics per kilogram. And a spinal is 0.02 to 0.08 mics per kilogram. And it's dosed on ideal body weight. Um, for PD, it's the same, um, and it's actually Suventa is even known to be safe for newborns. Um, the other thing is uh, it has an onset of about one to two minutes, so it's pretty quick, but not as fast as the uh, fentanyl or morphine. And uh, spinal dosing it, it takes about, or epidural dosing takes about four to ten minutes to kick in. Uh, duration we're looking at fifteen to thirty minutes, and uh, for spinals epidurals it takes its duration is about four to eight hours. Um, so sufenta or sufentanil is made into many inactive metabolites, uh, and the liver and the small intestine are the major sites of metabolism. So you want to make sure those are in check before you give it, um, to make sure things don't start accumulating and, uh, clearance in pediatric patients is actually half the rate compared to adults. And it's completely dependent on the hepatic blood flow. 
so obviously, Sufenta, because it's such a strong drug, it can induce some really profound analgesic property properties to uh, what uh, the cases that's going on, and uh, it can cause a little anesthesia as well. So contraindications are the same as the other opioids, same exact risk factors for pregnancy as the other opioids. Um, and usually for this drug, because of how potent it is, you want to make sure you truly dilute it uh, to the concentration that is safe uh, to be given. So usually providers will dilute it down to five mics per milliliter. So when you have fentanyl, it's usually 50 mics per ml, or remifentanil is even 50 mics per ml, but sufenta is five. Um, so you want to try to keep the total dose to less than one mic per kilogram per hour, including the induction dose, uh, just because of how profound the, this opioid and its strength is. Uh, so don't forget, sufenta or, or sufentanil is 10 times more potent than fentanyl. And it's good for cases where you expect there to be a lot of high stimulation or a lot of pain. And it is more expensive than fentanyl uh, per vial, something to keep in mind as well. Anything else you think of, John? Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I, I, I see people reach for sufentanil oftentimes in cardiac cases. Uh, you can just give less of mm -hmm. it because it's more potent than fentanyl. Some studies have shown that it's, it's equally effective and safe in those cases. Uh, it does come with a slightly higher price tag. So some people just stick with fentanyl and get more of it. Yeah, but that's it. So, and next up is alfentanil. So the uh, trade name on that is simply alfenta. It's also an opioid agonist. And so the mechanism of action is similar. The dose for alfentanil is uh, for adults on induction, 15 to 150 mics per kilogram IV. Same dose for pediatrics. The onset is very rapid at one to two minutes. The duration is very short at one to 15 minutes. For metabolism and excretion, it is prolonged duration of action with liver disease, and there's no effect from kidney issues. Erythromycin can inhibit the oxidizing activity of uh, the enzyme and decrease alfentanil clearance by 50%. And cimetidine can also prolong the effects of alfentanil. The indications, contraindications, precautions, and side effects and pregnancy risk factors are similar as with other opioids. And remember, it's an analog of fentanyl, but it's about one-fifth to one-tenth weaker. So it's about 10% the potency of fentanyl, and it has about one-third the duration of action. So it's very helpful if you want an analgesic effect that is short-acting or a case that has high simulation at a particular moment but then that's going to wane and you don't want perhaps the uh, cardiac effects or set of effects of, of a longer acting um, analgesic. And then propofol stops, one other note is that propofol stops the oxidative enzymatic degradation of alfentanil and sufentanil. So what that means is that it prolongs their duration of action. Uh, any other tips on alfentanil? I don't know. I think it's one of the most important things also to know is the, I mean, it may be a little advanced right now, but the context like sort of half-life is a great way to look at what your goal is for which analgesic to choose uh, now that it looks like we're concluding analgesics and opioids here. So I think, uh, so definitely just go to Google and you just type in alfentanil context sensitive half-life and you'll see what happens if you keep increasing the dose of all these different opioids, how long it will take to clear out of the body. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's great it. point. I, I think that comes into play. You know, some of our, uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the really fun things about anesthesia is that practice varies uh, 
usually shop to shop and region to region throughout the United States. So, you know, so for some of our very long anesthetics, like uh, plastic surgery, uh, deep flap cases where you're taking abdominal tissue and doing breast reconstructions, you know, we'll use a fentanyl infusion for that. So it's relatively cheap. You get a steady state analgesic property out of a fentanyl infusion but contact sensitive half-life is one of those things because as folks, if you, fo- if you look up, um, you know, comparative charts, which obviously Michael and I are, are staring at in our notes here, the fentanyl just goes through the roof um, after a couple of hours in terms of uh, its contact sensitive half-life. So what that means is that the longer you run a fentanyl infusion, the more it's going to build up and the longer that that is going to take to come off at the end of a case. Whereas something like Remy fentanyl, you could run that for eight hours straight. It would be an expensive anesthetic, but when you shut it off, mm-hmm. it's gone in five to 15 minutes. It doesn't matter that you ran it for uh, eight hours, uh, but if you ran a fentanyl infusion for eight hours, it's going to take a long time for that to come off. And that principle is referred to as the context-sensitive half-life. Perfect. Cool. Yeah, that's a great Great thing to look at. Let's, yeah. give a, let's give a primer just where we are in, in this show. So uh, we just concluded with the analgesics. We're going to switch over and wrap up part one of the top drawer rundown with a quick look at the most common paralytics. Yes, absolutely. My favorite drug, which is sexmacolin, also known as anexian. Uh The reason I call it my favorite drug is because I did a podcast uh, with you, John, earlier uh, on it. And uh, so for class, it's a depolarizing muscle relaxant. Uh, method of action is that it stimulates and antagonizes the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Uh, so the key word here to discern it is the stimulation part, which is basically the same, which comes from the class of depolarizing it. Uh, so for adult dosing, uh, according to textbooks, it's one to two milligrams per kilogram. Um, and for pediatrics, it's also one to two milligrams per kilogram IV. Um, IM, you can do two to four milligrams per kilogram, and you want to increase your dosing IM uh, the younger the pediatric patient is. So the onset is quite rapid. Uh, We're talking 30 seconds or less, you will have full 100% paralysis uh, with your correct dosing. And uh, in IM dosing, it does it within minutes. Uh, Duration is only about five to 10 minutes. And uh, it's broken down by plasma cholinesterase and excreted by urine. So something to note here is that this is the only paralytic drug uh, that is independent of liver and kidney function. Um, so that's it's good to know. And uh, there's a whole other thing on plasma cholinesterase that uh, hopefully you will look into with deficiencies in that that can prolong it. Uh, but that's not for this podcast. Uh, so for indications, it's obviously it's a paralytic drug. So whenever you need muscle relaxation, especially for rapid intubation situations or procedures that are very short, you could use succinylcholine to get you there. Uh, contraindications, it's not a true contraindication unless it's an emergency, but it's not recommended to use in children less than 12 years of age. And actually, this is a black box warning from the FDA Um for using this drug in that age population because of uh, many cases of sudden cardiac arrest from these children because of undiagnosed Duchenne's uh, muscular dystrophies. Um, Another thing is uh, precautions is that succinylcholine will always raise your potassium level. So the average person for a healthy adult is about 0.5 higher than what you see 
uh, for labs. So that's very negligible. It shouldn't cause any issues in the patient for just that small increase. But that norm number can go a lot higher uh, in, in several types of patient populations. So that includes muscular diseases, burns, traumas. Uh, you want to really be careful using the sexicoli in these patients. So another way to think about it is, are the muscles affected from a trauma, a chronic disease, uh, anything that has to do with muscle problems, you want to think twice before you use succinylcholine. And another thing is succinylcholine, because it causes depolarization of the muscles, which is basically it stimulates the muscles, it can cause muscle pain, also known as myalgia. Um, it can also possibly increase ICP, which is intracranial pressure. It can increase possibly intragastric pressures, intraocular pressures. It can cause muscle uh, jaw rigidity. Um, but a lot of these things, like I talked in my previous podcast, can be blunted or have no effect when you use a uh, defasciculating dose of drug, uh, which is basically using a non-depolarizer um, preemptively. And uh, for pregnancy, it's actually known to be safe to use because it does not cross the placenta. So the reason we, and I always say, if it doesn't cross the brain, it usually won't cross the placenta. So that's how you can think about it is um, if it's safe for the fetus or not. And another thing is, if you want more notes or you want a lot more details on it, there's a podcast on it. Anything you want to add, John? Yeah, I'd say we, we spent about an hour, I think, walking through uh, the depths of succinylcholine on a previous podcast. If you want more, mm-hmm. hop over there to it. Um, I think it's it's very interesting. You'll definitely note the fasciculations when you give succinylcholine, uh, which are commonly uh, associated with myalgias at the end of the case, increasing the dose you know, up to 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram in some studies has been shown to uh, not necessarily reduce fasciculations, but reduce myalgias. And then uh, usually giving an NSAID like Tordal can also reduce the incidence of myalgias or, or muscle aches after a case with sucks. So That's uh, exactly right. it, it might be Michael's favorite drug, but for those who get it, it, it may not be theirs. I love it. I think it's great. I think, you know, succinylcholine is one of those drugs that people either love or they hate. I think it's definitely got a good place. Um, uh, obviously with rapid sequence induction. So, uh, it's something for folks to be familiar with for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Cool. All right. Well, um, next up is Rocketronium. So Zimuron by trade name, and this is the first non-depolarizing muscle relaxant that we will talk about. So, uh, it competitively antagonizes the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So it blocks the action of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. The dose for Rocketronium, the, the intubating dose is considered to be 0.6 milligrams per kilogram classically. And if you want an RSI dose, you know, to approach the speed of onset of something like succinylcholine, that dose range goes up to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. Pediatric dosing is the same as adult and the IM dosing, if uh, for some reason you were in the uh, the terrible situation of having to get this IM, it would be 1 to 1.8 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, pharmacodynamics and kinetics, the onset is 1 to 2 minutes. The duration is 20 to 35 minutes. Some sources will prolong that up to 
up to two hours for, you know, its full excretion and elimination. You know, it's a consideration to think about reversing these paralytics, which we'll talk in part two uh, of the top drill rundown. Metabolism and excretion, it is excreted 30% through the kidneys and 70% through the liver. It's indicated, obviously, for muscle paralysis for a procedure, or um, it's the one non-depolarizer that people reach for for RSI. The only contraindication is known hypersensitivity. There's no strong precautions or side effects to mention. Considerations are that the use of magnesium and certain antibiotics and inhalational anesthetics can all uh, prolong the duration of non-depolarizers, including rocuronium. And uh, as we talked about, it can be an alternative for RSI. What I think is a, is a super interesting note on rocuronium, which we may do a podcast on this at some point down the road, is that uh, some people have argued that it will one day replace succinylcholine as the drug of choice for RSI now that Sugamidex has come onto the scene. So a very quick you know, primer on that is that studies have shown that the reversal of an intubating RSI dose of rocuronium, so 1.2 milligrams of rocuronium, if you wait three minutes, which is the manufacturer's recommendation for reversing that dose with Sugamidex, and then give 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex, that medication will be reversed and you will have restoration of neuromuscular function, uh, specifically to train a four 0.9 or higher, which is what's classically considered to have respiratory function and protection and protecting your airways and that kind of stuff, you'll have that reversal of the agent faster than what it takes for succinylcholine to spontaneously metabolize out of the bloodstream. So some people mm-hmm. say that rocuronium may become the drug of choice for RSI as long as you have a lot of Sugaminex laying around because if you lost the airway and you were in a can't ventilate, can't intubate situation, you could potentially get rid of your paralytic that you gave quicker than if you were using succinylcholine. So it would be very interesting to see, you know, during our practice times, Michael, if, if this is something that actually shifts in routine practice and anesthesia. What are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I think... As soon as the Gamadex becomes generic, I think that's when the game changer will happen because right now the biggest argument for not using Sugamidex is cost, 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 and needs more research. Uh, but really, I think it's as soon as we can, once it becomes like water for us where it's basically almost nothing for a vial, there's no reason to use three, four vials of Sugamidex if we need it emergently. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the only really limiting factor at this point is cost since it's still such a new drug for us. Yeah, I completely agree. And and we'll talk more about Sugamidex coming up. So uh, yeah. any other any other notes on rocuronium that you want to mention before you move on? I don't know. Just a fun fact is when the manufacturer made rocuronium, they actually called it rocuronium because the RO stands for rapid onset uh, since it was the fastest non-depolarizer uh, of the paralytics and they were trying to compete with the onset of succinylcholine without all, without all those side effects. So just something little and and that to know. and that is why podcasts exist, man, for factoids like that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now, now you know. All right. What's up? Yeah. What's all up right. next? Next one is the uh baby or the older brother, the uh Vecuronium, also trade name known as Norcuron. Uh, it is a non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, just like rocuronium is. 
Uh, it antagonizes the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. So the dosing for vecuronium is 0.05 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. So most commonly, though, we just give 0.1 milligram per kilogram for a dose for inducing full paralysis. And the uh, thing with vecuronium is that a lot it comes in a powder form, and it must be diluted uh, with uh, normal saline. And uh, for pediatric dosing, it's 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. For IV and IM, is 1 to 1.8 milligrams per kilogram. The onset with uh, vecuronium, which is probably one of the big reasons we don't like using it so much as we do vacuronium, is the onset is three to five minutes. Uh, so you can just imagine pushing back and having to bag for three minutes before you can intubate seems like an, an extremely long time. <laughs> but uh, the duration is 20 to 35 minutes or 30 to 60 minutes, depending on which textbook you read. So metabolism and excretion, it's mainly 20% renal, and it's excreted through the biliary tract, 80% of it. So the indications of it, it's mainly for, obviously, muscle paralysis, uh, whenever you need relaxation, vecuronium will, that's its only known indication. Contraindication is only if there's a known sensitivity. You just have to be careful of giving it for patients who have liver disease because it can prolong its effects. There's no true pregnancy risk factors known. Also to note, females are more sensitive to vecuronium. Uh, and actually, in one textbook, it stated that 20, you should probably give 22% smaller doses to females because they can achieve the same exact effect in comparison to males. And SIVO will shorten the onset of VEC, which I actually did not know until I looked this up. And it does prolong its use if you're using a drip of vecuronium, so it may take longer to recover because of the active metabolites it builds up. And yeah, it's, you have to give it time to set in. It's not an immediate paralytic you you give yourself a good three to five minutes you know that's a whole song that has to yeah. play before you get full paralysis to do your intubation yeah i hear you man um, I, I often joke that it's the longest four minutes in healthcare you're sitting there and you know you do your induction and you're you're mask ventilating the patient and you're just hanging out and you think it's been four minutes and so you go to intubate and more often than not it's not been four minutes because the cords are still moving and Maybe the patient yeah. starts coughing when you try to put the tube in. So, yeah, I think the the emphasis with vecuronium it's a great it's a great medication. Uh, if you're using it for induction, just get a good mask seal and uh, celebrate the fact that you're. Um, if you haven't already, then you're working on adequately denitrogenating your patient, um, so you can take all the time exactly. you want with uh, getting the tube in. <laughs> if you need to practice masking, you use vecuronium. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Keep that in mind, uh, yeah. CRNAs, for something that you can. Uh, have your students practice. So, um, there you go. all right. Well, our last medication on part one and our last paralytic is cisatricurium, which is Nimbex. And like the others, it's a non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, which antagonizes the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junction. The dose for cisatricurium is 0.15 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. Now, many people are familiar with this medication as an infusion that they ran in the ICUs as a Nimbex infusion, and that dose typically is one to three mics per kilogram per minute as an infusion. Uh, pediatric, the dose drops just slightly, so an IV induction dose or paralytic dose for Nimbex uh, for peds is 0.1 to 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. 
And the pharmacodynamics and kinetics of this medication is that the onset is two to three minutes. The duration is 30 to 45 minutes. The half-life is about 30 minutes. And the interesting thing about cystatricurium comes in with metabolism and excretion. It has organ-independent metabolism. So it's metabolized through ester hydrolysis and Hoffman elimination, which is a non-enzymatic degradation through esterases that are found in the bloodstream. It is excreted through the kidneys. Indications, of course, are muscle paralysis for the procedure. Contraindications would be hypersensitivity. There's minimal precautions. There's no pregnancy risk factors to speak of. And I think one tidbit about Hoffman elimination to remember is that it's influenced by temperature and pH. So elimination is increased with alkalosis and hyperthermia, and elimination is decreased with acidosis and hypothermia. The practical application of that would probably come in again if you were using this as a continuous infusion in the ICU on a patient who was receiving therapeutic hypothermia, you were keeping them paralyzed to reduce shivering, and now you're in the rewarming phase. You know, if you decided for some reason to shut off the Nimbex, uh, just remember that elimination is decreased with hypothermic patients. So any thoughts on cystatricurium, uh, Michael? Yeah, I, the only one that you just have to be careful about is if you need to reverse it, well, you really can't unless you use neostigmine. So you have to be very careful uh, when you give it because it's and once it's in there, it's in there. Yeah, Michael, that's a great point. I think remembering that cystatricurium is actually a different class of non-depolarizing muscle relaxant than vecuronium and rocuronium. Those are vecuronium and rocuronium are aminosteroid-based compounds, and Sugamidex only works on uh, steroidal-based compounds. So Sugamidex is not effective at all for uh, succinylcholine, of course, nor cystatricurium. Cystatricurium's class pharmacologically is a benzyl lysoquinoline, and that includes cystatricurium, atricurium, and mivacurium, some of the older paralytics. So because it's a different class, it's not a steroidal-based medication, Sugaminix will not work on it. So as you pointed out, you have to go old school and use uh, neostigmine commonly coupled with glycopyrrolate to reverse cystatricurium. All right. Yep, well, that's it. hey, I think that wraps up uh, part one. So part yep. one of the top drawer rundown and join us uh, for part two coming up.